she starts, if anyone needs a handout, there are more coming, but if you just raise your hand, I'll get you one. Okay, all right, they're coming. <laughs> the handout will have um, just a few quotations on it that I'll be referring to, but um, uh, just gives you kind of a basic outline of some of the content of the talk. But all of that will also be up on the PowerPoint, so um, you'll have a, a chance to follow along, even if you don't get a handout right away. Um, I wonder if we could just open with prayer for a minute. Our Lord and our God, I thank you for this room full of wonderful teachers. I thank you for their faithful and good work, and I thank you for the grace that you have given them. I ask that you help their work to bear fruit and be a blessing to those that they serve. For Jesus' sake, I know. All right, well, my aspiration um, when I show up as a philosopher is always to say something true, something interesting, and something helpful. So if I can hit all three of those today, that will be a win for us. And I recognize that I'm speaking to people who are interested in practice, who are interested in how to do things in the classroom. So there will be a little bit of framing at the beginning of the talk, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, um, in part because you can buy yourself the book for Christmas and read Chapter 10 and pretty much get that on your own. Um, so I just want to let you know that we'll be um, going through that kind of material pretty quickly, trying to get to the practical stuff. So I work on the history of the Christian tradition and specifically the part of the tradition that focuses on uh, virtues and vices, that is to say, um, moral and spiritual formation. So that's my subject area. And I have, in this particular book, um, focused on the vices, but that's a little bit misleading. Um, you don't like to be the Calvinist who shows up sort of specializing in sin talk. <laughs> There's actually more to the story than that. Um, my story is really, how do we think about vice in... Um, parallel to virtue formation, and then how do we get from our sort of old bad habits to the new ones. So the big story is spiritual formation. And this particular classroom experiment stuff came from a very provocative essay by Alistair McIntyre called The Irrelevance of Ethics. Now, I teach ethics, so when somebody calls me irrelevant, all of a sudden I sit up and take notice. His point was really about uh, business ethics courses that were being taught at Notre Dame. That was sort of his target at the time. And his story was these business ethics courses where you go through a whole program of study and come out with a business degree, and then at the very end they would tag on an ethics class that would teach you sort of the right way to behave. You know, here are the rules, here's the way to sort of do business stuff um, ethically. And his point in the article is that it made no difference they could have cut the course. Because what had happened in the course of their education is that they had been deeply trained and formed in what he called the values of the market. Individual, consumer, productivity, and success. And success measured largely um, in terms of measurables, deliverables, and money. And when you've done four years of that training, then to tack on, oh, and behave ethically and speak honestly and all that kind of stuff was just, it was just sort of lost in the noise. The formation was doing all the work, right? And I took that as a really interesting challenge. I thought, okay, now I want to go back to my classroom and think about what am I implicitly teaching and training my students by the way I set up class, by the way I set up the space, by the way I talk, by the things I choose to teach, by the way I create community in the classroom. All of those things are probably more deeply formative than any of the particular content that I might be teaching. So that was my challenge and um, here's the way I, here's the direction that I took it. Uh, the idea is you are going to be formed one way or the other and the point is to be intentional about it and perhaps even countercultural about it. Uh, as John Stott um, once said, holiness is not a condition into which you can drift. Right? It has to be sort of intentional cultivation going on here. Now, I start all the way back in scripture in the wisdom tradition. I see myself as speaking in the same tradition where the psalmist in Psalm 1 starts right off the bat by saying, look, there are two whole ways of life going on here. The way of virtue and wisdom, life and blessing, and then the way of 
what the Psalms and the Proverbs really paint as a self-destructive way of life, a way in which we pursue our own way apart from God, and the wisdom tradition calls that folly, and that leads to self-destruction. So my question um, in all of my work in Virtue Vice is really, what are the roots? Where is the tree that you are putting down roots? Is it growing in the way of life, or is it growing in a way of destruction and self-destruction um, self and wickedness? So the idea that, um, and these are medieval trees, um, this one, my pointer here, is rooted in pride, and you can see that it's growing branches and bearing fruit. So the idea of where are you rooted and then what fruit are you growing is a, an idea that goes all the way from biblical wisdom literature through Greek philosophy to medieval or ancient medieval Christianity. So, and then this uh, parallel virtue tree here has Mary at the Annunciation at the base, and she's exemplifying open-handed love for God, humility, openness to his way. So following his way in humility and love is her picture uh, of how to grow in virtue. And you can see at the top here, that is a picture of Christ. Christ, your head, you're growing up into Christ-like virtue. So the goal of that character is to become Christ-like in your character, in your person, and in your way of life. So how do we do this? Well, it's interesting that when you go to the Beatitudes, what's the first thing Jesus, the premier paradigmatic wisdom teacher, what's the first thing out of his mouth in this teaching to his disciples? The way of blessedness. <laughs> Blessed are they, and here are all the virtues that you need, and here is the way of life I expect you to practice. And it's remarkable, actually, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, how many virtues and vices on these sort of canonical lists from ancient medieval Christianity show up there. Um, so I don't think that's accidental, that there's conversation, intentional conversation between those traditions. So when Christ is our wisdom teacher, his goal is discipleship, formation, Christ-likeness in our character and our way of life. He wants you to do what he does, believe what he believes, for the sake of becoming like him. So Paul, in many passages, um, Colossians 3 is the one I have partly quoted here, but Romans 12 is on your sheet as well from the message, calls us to this kind of transformation, and he's speaking the language of the wisdom tradition here. Take off your old self with its practices, its habits, its ways of life, put on the new self, which is called to be Christ-like, that's the paradigm of virtue and wisdom, and that putting on involves becoming a new self. So Paul's using that language, and when uh, Eugene Peterson translates it in the message, it's all about the weaving of everyday activities in your ordinary rhythms of life. So this call to not be conformed, but to be transformed, is all about your eating and your sleeping and your shopping and your talking and your listening, right? And how much you rest and how you play. It's all that everyday stuff that you often don't think about as transformative stuff, but I think is deeply so. Now, I always have to warn people well, when they hear this vice to virtue talk that this is not just an invitation to a new Christian version of self-help stuff, like let's go be virtuous. Um, and that is a temptation. We're all doers, and we're deeply formed by American culture, which is all about do-it-yourselfer land. Um, it's DIY everything in American culture right now. There's probably a YouTube video that tells you how to be virtuous, okay? So let's, let's just bracket the American way and think about how this works in Christianity. And the third part of the catechism, I think, nails this. It does talk about bearing fruit. It talks about becoming fruitful, but that way of life is not earning your way into a righteousness. It is not trying to do it yourself. It's a spirit-empowered process we call sanctification. Um, so that different frame, I think, helps us think about this not as a you know, let's go find some virtuous practices. And I mean, there's a lot of character formation talk in K-12 education and has been for many years now, right? Here are the signature virtues that we're trying to cultivate as a school community. I want to say, yes, that is a beautiful picture of Christ-like character that is your goal, but how do you get there? The answer isn't just practice hard. 
So I want to present a Benedictine image to you to think about this, to think about how to get this right. Um, Benedict's rule, famous um, uh, rule of life presented by um, St. Benedict, used in Benedictine monasteries for 1,500 years or so now, um, and pretty well-worn in terms of giving us a set of practices that are meant to be transformative of our character. Now, St. Augustine also had a rule, there are many rules out there, so this is just one example. Um, but the word regula in the Latin, not only um, is the root of our word regular, what are the regular rhythms of your life, but it also cues up a kind of scaffold or a trellis image. Um, so I think that's a helpful way to think about this invitation to cultivate good character and virtue. When Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith godliness, and Paul tells us to put what we've seen in Paul's character into practice, what they're really saying is, build a scaffold, be intentional about how you set your life up in a way that is open to God and open to the Spirit's given growth. So this is not necessarily about us doing the work, ultimately, but us at least being intentional about how we're scaffolding that process. And I just want to bump out here to play a little short video from Steve Macchia um, that will give you kind of a sense of the way to think about, one way to think about this. Hopefully all the stars will align. An invitation to the well-ordered way is an invitation to a beautiful life. When you think about anything of beauty, a piece of art, a piece of poetry, a cathedral, even a meal that you've created for family and friends. It's not something that's done by osmosis or happenstance. No, it's something that's intentionally, thoughtfully, perfectly prepared. And that's really what our life is to be. Our life is to be something that we thoughtfully consider, perfectly, bring before the Lord. Lord, how do you want me to live for you? How do you want me to use all that I am for your glory? Crafting a rule of life takes us to those questions, to those places where we say, what about our relationships? What about our gifts and abilities? What about our passion and desires? What about our vision and mission? Those big questions that define us and, and help us to formulate a life that is intentionally lived for his glory. Those, those are the places where we begin. And then we take each of the major areas of our life, like our prayer life and our relationships, our physical life, our, the care for our stewardship of resources and, and our mission, our service to others. And we say, God, is, are, we, are we living for you in ways that honor and please you in all of those areas? Or does it need some refinement, some refocusing, some retooling? So in the context of our spiritual community, we say, how are we all doing? How are we doing together? And how are we doing individually? And when we begin to ask those questions and, and seek God's answers for our life, we then realize, wow, we can live a much more intentional, far more beautiful life when we've prayerfully and thoughtfully considered each and every one of these areas. So that's really what crafting a rule of life is. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to consider our life before God, with one another, and in our prayerful place with the Lord. Lord, what are you inviting me into? How do you want me to live for you? When we ask those questions and explore those areas, we realize, wow, this is an awesome way to live. This is what the abundant life looks like. And it wasn't just for Peter and Moses and Ruth. It's for you and for me today, here and now. So come, explore this life that God has invited you into and that unique thumbprint that he's placed over your life. Become all that he intends. Live for his honor and glory and do so side by side with your friends and spiritual community. Together we will become the church that God intends. If we craft our rule of life and then if we live it in ways that honor and please him. Um, 
Um, so you get a sense from Steve um, and his framing of this, is that what we're doing here is thinking about our classroom space and the community there and the life we're living together in that space as a, a thing of beauty, something that we can craft um, intentionally. And so then thinking about the spiritual disciplines in that context, um, if you flip your handout over, there's a space where I've just left the definition of a spiritual discipline blank. Here's the definition I'm working with. You hear it in the way that Steve is um, explaining a rule of life, too. It's not, here are the practices we are doing to become more Christ-like. It's, it's rather an open-handed view. Here is what I'm doing to place my life before God. Here is what I am doing to be receptive to God's spirit. Here are the places and the spaces where I am being attentive to him and, and allowing him to engage in that transformative work. So we want to think of vices as sort of the old ruts, the old cultural formation that we're stuck in, and then the virtues as the picture of Christ-like character we're trying to live into, and then the spiritual disciplines as a kind of bridge between the two, where we are intentionally cooperating with the Holy Spirit um, in that process. All right, here's the nuts and bolts part. How do we translate this into classroom practice? I have a number of pieces um, where I talk about practices I've experimented with in the classroom, and I'm just here to tell you in all due humility, that has not always gone well. Um, I've learned a lot by trial and error. Um, I don't know of a lot of other people who are up to this stuff, so um, I've been kind of learning as I go, and I'm here to share with you today um, what's gone well, but that isn't to say um, there won't be a learning curve in all of our our work in this area, but if I know anything about K-12 teachers, it's that they're a very faithful, creative bunch, and so I'm sort of saying, I'm going to plant some seeds here, hopefully, and, and expecting you to be able to translate, adapt, um, and move things forward in your own classrooms. So I have deliberately framed these practices in terms of Paul's word to the Philippian church. Um, Whatever is true and excellent, praiseworthy, admirable, lovable, think about that stuff. Think about those things. And then whatever you have heard or seen in me, put it into practice. So I'm going to divide this rather arbitrarily, I think, into thinking intentionally about our life as a whole and then also putting that into practice. So first of all, here are some spiritual disciplines that I have hopefully creatively, transferred into classroom practices and adapted for that format. Um, and really, these are a set of practices that are about transforming our imagination, our vision, our framing of our, the ways that our, our lives go, the stories that shape us. So this is kind of the big picture reflective stuff. Um, memento mori uh, means reflecting on your death. Um, and what I do with my ethics class actually is go to the cemetery right behind school here. Um, we take a field trip to the cemetery and we sit somewhere in the cemetery and we write a retrospective on the person we've become so far in our life, as if we were standing at a graveside reflecting on our lives. Because that's one of the very few places um, that people actually think about character. So if you retire, um, people will talk about your accomplishments and all the things that you did. But at your funeral, they talk about the person you are. And so reflecting on the character that I've developed so far is an intentional practice where you're looking at your life as a whole and your character as a whole and trying to look up, sum up themes, trajectory, history, and all the rest of it. Now, I recognize that A, this is kind of depressing, and B, maybe wouldn't translate very well to a third grade classroom. Okay, that's fair enough. I will grant you that point. Um, but there are ways to adapt the practice that I think are pretty evident to, um, to many of you. How can we reflect on our character as a whole? I mean, we might even um, talk about a month that we take to do thinking about where we've come so far this year in terms of the kinds of practices, the kind of community we're trying to become, kind of doing double checks you know, maybe at Thanksgiving break, we take time to give thanks for how far we've come as a classroom community in some area. And we also look ahead to say, oh, there's clearly, you know, 
places we still need to grow. So there's, I, I mean, I'm imagining this as, uh, I know there's an eighth grade project that Calvin Christian does, which is a tapestry project. It's a retrospective project. It's that kind of project. Um, so adapting this spiritual discipline into that practice is a pretty easy shift. Your senior year in high school might be another place to do this so far. Actually, I would love to see this kind of practice bookend high school. Like, okay, high school, here's your chance to grow, people. Um, let's be intentional about character development here. And then and your senior year, looking back, you know, let's, be, let's think about the kind of people that we're growing to be. The examine, um, which is also on your handout, uh, a little small description of it. It's from St. Ignatius, actually. Um, this is supposed to happen at the end of every day, where you review your day and sort of where are you in the lingo of spiritual formation. Where did you keep company with Jesus? Where was his presence manifest to you in a way that brought you consolation and joy? And where did you disconnect from God? Where, where did you get distant from him? And how did that affect your behavior, your attitude, your emotions, and so on? So Ignatius's terms are consolation and desolation, sort of the, the, the mood, the emotional tenor of our distance from God and our connection to God. Um, and when students are learning to name emotions and to draw emotions into the spiritual life, um, that can be a useful tool as well. Where did I see God at work today? And how did I experience closeness with him? Where are the places that happens for me? And when my students engage in this kind of thing, they'll come away with patterns that they've noticed. So if you do this five days in a row, for example, they'll say, you know, when I get really busy and really overwhelmed with homework, devotions is the first thing to go. I start to get frazzled. I cut out all the, the spiritual stuff because that's a luxury item, whereas the stuff is really the center of my life, but that's not life-giving to me. Okay, well, let's try to think about what would, going back to the rule of life, what would a more sustainable, balanced, spiritually healthy rhythm look like? So noticing those patterns um, can be really helpful. Contemplation. Um, there's a teacher in this room, actually, who has taught my fourth grader contemplation. So you can give your students space and time to encounter beauty, either in nature or in art or in poetry. I love the Minute Maid slogan. If you go to the grocery store this weekend, buy yourself a container of Minute Maid. And look at the slogan on the very back of the container, the carton. It will say, put good stuff in, get good stuff out. Now that's a little too simplistic. But the idea is, what are you filling your thought life with? What are you filling your mind with? Paul says, think about these things. Look at the majority of your life. What are you filling your mind with? And I think that's a really interesting challenge to offer our students at any level. Is it important to encounter beauty? Is it encounter, important to encounter that in art and in nature? Where are the places where our lives get filled up with beautiful exemplars of goodness and godliness? And how do those feed our soul? I mean, obviously you can do scripture, you can contemplate that as well, but when we are refreshed in that way, um, our lives will go differently. And again, if you pair that then with the examine, you notice that contemplative filling, um, joy in the presence of God and his good gifts, taking time to enjoy them, is actually going to feed periods of consolation. So rule of life we've already talked about. Um, patterns of life reveal priorities. So that's, I mean, and that's a convicting, always a convicting word to me. Um, and you can look on Steve, uh, Steve's website for resources there, um, but there are also some books up here um, that have helped me. I would point you, especially, uh, especially if you're in earlier grades, Justin Whitmill Early has a website devoted to his book, The Common Rule. And it's a highly simplified version of a rule of life for all households, all ages, um, and so he, that's kind of a very practical tool. It, will, it may feel a little bit dumbed down, but that's okay. Um, you are creative enough to use the tools um, and to use them well. But that's, a, I think, a helpful place to look for that. And then another practice I engage in in my own um, work in the classroom is to envision role models. So I have an exercise that my philosophy students do on the very first day of class in intro, and it's called, Who is the Wisest Person You Know? 
So they have to identify someone who embodies and exemplifies wisdom. Now you could pick any virtue. You could pick courage, you could pick kindness, generosity, um, you know, any, anything in the playbook of the Colossians 3 list of virtues, right? Who is the most courageous person you know, and how do you see that in them? How is that exemplified? Because having a picture of what you're trying to live into is helpful, again, as that kind of imaginative, catalyzing, reflecting on who we're called to be and what that actually looks like in practice. So the communion of saints and being part of a church or a school community can be enormously important for that kind of exercise. Who embodies faithfulness in your life? Where do you see that? How do you see that? How would you live into that is the question. And Christian Miller, a colleague of mine who's done some work on virtue formation, talks about virtue labeling. Um, vocabulary is, turns out to be really important because when we label children, they tend to live into their labels. Now, we can all imagine bad cases of that, right? Bullies, taunting, and all the rest of it. And, and we live into those negative labels, too. But what if we had a really, really rich, fine-grained virtue vocabulary? to name what's happening when things go well. We're trying to live into faithfulness here. What's the difference between compassion, mercy, and kindness? What if your students could answer that question and then they knew how to discriminate what that looks like in practice and what the, how the label should be applied? So I think having a really rich vocabulary is helpful. And I find with my own students, um, they do not have this vocabulary. <laughs> They really don't have a lot of virtue terms. They'll use terms like, is leadership a virtue? Is resilience a virtue? Um, they, they don't quite know what fits in the category. And there will be virtues that cross cultural formation and Christian formation, and there will be distinctive virtues in each category. Why, why are these lists different? That's, Again, a really interesting question to ask in terms of what's the operative role model or vision of the good life behind each of these lists and why they differ. So that's an interesting exercise. All right, so this um, cartoon, I think, shows us that we are, in fact, by default, culturally formed in ways that are a little toxic, self-destructive, and to not to put too fine a point on it, vicious, right? They exemplify... Most of our behavior on Twitter does, in fact, exemplify prideful superiority and contempt and a number of other things, and uh, the Grubhub logo uh, for gluttony and eBay for greed and Netflix for sloth. You have a sense that, oh, yeah, the fact that I recognize all of these immediately says something, all right? We are actually naming the way that our default formation can happen in the culture. So the question for you as educators and for me as an educator is, what am I doing in the classroom to counterform my students? What am I doing intentionally to live against these defaults? Um, and as the rule of life stuff makes clear, that has to be intentional. It's not all about your work and your effort, but it does have to be an intentional mode of cooperation because drifting is probably going to send us down the wrong river. All right, so I'm just going to go through as many of the vices as I end up having time for, and I'm going to quit at um, 11.30 so that we have time to talk together and ask questions. But I just want to go through the vices one by one just because this is my shtick, so I'll just offer you the examples I have in hand, um, but encourage you to creatively adapt these in your own classrooms as well. So in yellow, you see a kind of a rough paraphrase. Definition of pride is overvaluing or seeking superior status, shunning dependence. Um, and what I've done in my classroom to try to counterform students in the practice of humility, and again, um, I'm trying to get them to practice this in a classroom. So it's going to involve using a text, right, and practicing platonic dialogue or whatever it is. Um, here's one way that I've done this, and I've offered you um, another handout, which I didn't make enough of, called A Well-Read Life, and this is available online, so it's, it's available um, open access at the Christian Scholars Review. They have a blog, and in this blog, I describe some of these practices in more detail. So what I have my students do is frame their learning in the course as apprenticeship. So I'm teaching... Medieval philosophers like Anselm and Aquinas, 
who specifically framed their own work as apprenticeship to a tradition. So the, the model of learning that they're operating under is, is humble. It's faith, imperfect grasp of things that we believe, seeking further understanding. I have room to grow. I have, I'm not the master of my subject. I'm not the expert. Oh, I got a you know, PhD in theology at the University of Paris, so let me tell you what's what. In the, you know, it's not that kind of move. It's, okay, I need to learn from all the people who came before me, all the church fathers, Cyprian, Tertullian, Augustine, and others. How do I take their teaching and engage in dialogue with that in a way that helps me grow into or become part of this tradition? So that apprenticeship model is the frame for how we're thinking about what they're doing. And what we notice is that they not only do this um, with the Christian tradition, for example, the church fathers and theologians and others, but they also do this with scripture. So everything that Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas are doing is done in conversation with or under the tutelage of the scriptural narrative and the scriptural frame for their lives. And they're, like Augustine and um, Anselm and others, are practicing these rules of life. So they're reading the Psalms, they're reading through all 150 Psalms every single week of their life. All right? So you just think about the, the depth of formation there and the way that that sort of just bleeds through, saturates everything that they're thinking and doing. How does learning to receive scripture provide us with a kind of apprenticeship model for learning? I think our cultural default is skim and scroll. Our cultural default of reading is mastery, consumption, use. So this is learning to receive either scripture or another text as an apprentice in a tradition. I think is a countercultural way to think about learning, reading. So I have my students practice a modified form of Lectio Divina. And we use 1 Corinthians 13 in part because this famous hymn of love actually has a lot to say about wisdom. Of course, I'm teaching philosophy, so wisdom is the, the, the practice, the virtue that we're trying to live into. And we notice the ways in which our sacrifices, um, our faith and understanding, our speaking isn't worth much unless it's rooted in love. So the passage is talking about the kind of training that we're trying to live into by apprenticing ourselves to passages like this. So what I have them do is sit with this text twice a day. Some of them will memorize the whole chapter. Extra credit. There's always those kids, right? Um, but what I found myself in memorizing the, the chapter, because I do this semester after semester, right, is that I keep seeing new things. This text keeps speaking to me in different ways. This text and its themes frame the things that I notice and am attentive to in the rest of the day. And it's a text that I can keep revisiting, keep repeating, because there's always new depths to learn from. And so to take that as a model of how we learn and then transfer that to the way that we appropriate the Christian tradition that we've received as a practice that I use in my own class. I actually, um, and I, I talk about this in the, in the article, the blog that I gave you, um, the way that Augustine uses this to tell his story as the story of a prodigal son. So he uses that gospel story to narrate his own story. So again, it's this kind of apprenticing my life and my life narrative to this larger gospel narrative and learning to tell my story not as mine, the story that I tell as a master of my story and I get to narrate the way it went. No, actually, I have to learn to tell my story in the right kind of way in order to tell it truthfully, and I'm not the sole author of it. So practices of humility that get embedded in the practice of reading, reading scripture or reading a text like Augustine's Confession. So vainglory, one of the less familiar of um, the seven deadly sins, I, Def defining it roughly here as the excessive desire to get approval and attention from others. So it's the kind of um, images everything vice. This particular vice um, is, I think, readily apparent in our own culture. We're so obsessed with publicity and celebrity and social media curated images 
And so the question is for my students, how can we step away from, again, that cultural formation and the things that it rewards into a new, more life-giving way? And the practice that I've engaged in with my students is silence. Now, you might notice it's kind of difficult to practice silence in the classroom. Um, so what we did is outside the classroom for a week, we didn't silence all talk, but we silenced self-talk. And you would be, I think, astounded at the ways in which we use words to manage our own image, manage our own reputation. How much of your commentary on what you like and what you don't like is image management, signaling the right things about yourself, signaling that you, you know this obscure rock band and you like the right things in, mus you know, in music or whatever. Um, you are in the know about what's happening in your community or in the local gossip, and you have an opinion about that that's really cool and everybody needs to hear about it. You have excuses and rationalizations that make you look like a righteous person, right? And you have opinions you can share, right? Shut all that stuff down. What's left of you? Resounding silence. <laughs> so most of us found that we could not even remember to practice this which was really telling also. Um, I'm apparently not the only talkative person. So my students could not remember not to talk about themselves. They ended up keeping a tic-tac or a piece of gum in their mouth or a mark on their hand in order to remind themselves even to practice the exercise. But once they got a few days in, what they found is that there was space in their lives now for other people to talk and that they learned to receive from others a different kind of exchange. They're, they just created space, right? This is the classic sort of spiritual discipline piece. Step away from a disordered attachment in order to make space for something new to grow. And what ended up growing was a kind of attentive listening to others because you weren't allowed to talk and share your own opinion. So you just had to listen. And what they reported after a week was that they felt like there were new spaces being opened in their friendships, new points of connection with people, who previously hadn't had a space and an opportunity to connect in that way before. So they felt like it was an enriching practice. So it's not just shutting stuff down, it's also letting new stuff grow. Scaffolding um, growth in that way. Wrath uh, is another one, um, one of a favorite. We are so formed, again, in our culture by contempt. Right, and that's my top little icons. Oh, not all of them showed up. Um, so Simon Cole, um, all the kind of judgy shows like the Shark Tanks and the American Idols and the Boys, it's all about putting somebody vulnerably on display and then showing contempt for them. That's what gets entertaining about those shows, right? Watch people, will they crumble? Will they not crumble? Will they hold up? Will they hold off the tears until they get backstage? I mean, what are we doing delighting in that stuff, right? It's really worrisome. Our political discourse, also full of contempt. Everything we do on Twitter, primarily, like the big showdown put down, is the operative mode of doing business in some of these platforms. So the question is, what, what are we doing here? How are we culturally formed? And my students and I did an anger journal for a week where we just documented all the things that we were getting angry about. And we also documented how angry we were. And then we went back in a couple weeks later and evaluated how many of the things that I'm getting angry about are, are genuinely just causes and things that are worth attending to with anger. Um, and, and how much of my anger was excessive versus moderate and proportional. And I can tell you it was, again, kind of shocking how badly we flunked the journal exercise. It was extremely convicting. And so one of the things that we tried to do is figure out how can we now engage in a different way of life. And one of the things that we tried was slowing down. Now, again, your sixth graders are not driving, hopefully. So the driving version of this exercise, which works for my college students, perhaps, um, might not work for them, but I do think there are other kinds of ways to slow down that are equally helpful. Learning to wait as an opportunity. So what we did um, is to take the metaphor of being in the driver's seat as kind of a wrath metaphor. 
my agenda, my control, my speed, I'm going to get there where I want to go on my schedule, that kind of stuff. What if we took ourselves out of, sort of, out of the driver's seat, so to speak, and engaged in our driving in a way that slows down? So you commit to going to the, going the speed limit, you commit to spending your time waiting at stoplights as a, a way to intentionally encounter the presence of God and to just be, to just be with him. So it's a way to sort of take a pause. Um, and I used Richard Foster's um, paraphrase of, I think it's Psalm 16. I have set the Lord ever before me in his presence is fullness of joy. So that was my verse for when I had to wait at a stoplight. Just, I'm just going to enjoy the presence of the Lord right now. I'm not going to think about how long this light is taking and why the person in front of me won't turn right even though it doesn't say turn. Anyway. Let all that stuff go. Pause in his presence. So the question is, how can we, in the classroom, for example, pause, slow down, get out of that angry me first control agenda mode of operating, right? And get ourselves into a pace that enables us to notice the presence of others and the presence of God. Again, you could pair this with examine. Um, where is God present to me in that sort of way? The other thing you can practice, um, and this was brought up to me by a colleague of mine who does disability studies. Um, he noted that most of the terms we use to insult others are terms of abuse for those with cognitive disabilities. You moron, you idiot, you fool. Okay? What if you take that stuff out of your vocabulary? What my students noticed is that they did not have the vocabulary to insult people. <laughs> and this was just one of those light bulb moments. So it's not just, why aren't we insulting people with disabilities? It's like, Christians, we're not insulting, we shouldn't be insulting people at all. <laughs> so light bulb moment for them in that regard. So wrath was, I think, a really fruitful place to tackle a culture where speed, productivity, and my agenda, and all my stuff is first and foremost on our priority list. That's what's ruling your rule of life, I think, culturally. Um, and so to step out of that involves slowing down. So here's another uh, slowing down example. So there's my other. Um, sloth, this is a complicated vice. I'm not going to get too deep into it here. Um, but Sloth has to do with diversion seeking and burnout and lots of other things. Things that threaten our ability to be content and committed in relationships of love. So one of the things that I practice with my students is we began every single day of class with three minutes of silence. And I gave them specific tools to use in that time of silence so that it wasn't just emptiness. Um, but rather, um, they were invited to meditate on a verse from Psalm 116, Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Be at rest. You're, you were invited into the gift of rest. You're, God is offering that to you. And what I found is that they couldn't learn very well when they were just rushing from class to class to class to class. I mean, burnout and distraction, talk about the college life, right? The, the rhythm of life is so off-kilter for most of my students that sort of getting them back into learning to live with space, silence, and rest, and to find that, to experience that as a replenishing moment um, was remarkably formative for them. In fact, um, one of the other things I offered them was a, a, a very short phrase by Mary Oliver, um, Sometimes I need only to stand where I am to be blessed. So again, just stand where you are. There's a blessing to be received there. Right? But I actually made them stand there and receive it for three minutes. Okay? And at the very beginning of the semester, it's, just, it's excruciating. People just can't stand it. Which, I mean, it's three minutes. So, okay. And I can imagine, too... Some of them suggested, you really need to scaffold this a little bit. Start with one minute. <laughs> Work us up to five, you know, by the end of the semester. Okay, I hear you. Um, but the thing that really got me is that the end of the semester, they came into the final exam and asked for the three minutes. It's like, okay, something, get, something happened here. Uh, where they learned to receive uh, the gift of rest in a way that... Um, the world was not offering them that gift. 
All right, a couple more. I'm just going to whiz through these um, for the sake of getting through for some time for questions. Um, with Envy, I've really used exemplar stories, and Disney's full of these things. Every, every Disney story is about Envy. If you start thinking about it, it's, all of, it's everywhere. Um, so thinking about, for my students, thinking again about exemplars. This is virtue labeling stuff. This is envisioning again. Um, they also, I invited them to think about places in their lives where they could pursue goods that were in common, where if I have more, you don't have less, where it's not a competitive game. And then all of a sudden we start thinking about, well, what if knowledge and wisdom weren't a competitive game? What if my knowledge or wisdom was actually a gift to everybody? It didn't threaten yours. It built up the whole community in law. Oh, there's a, there's a countercultural paradigm for education itself, it seems to me. We make grades and academic success just one more formative exercise preparing us for market success, right? Being productive and being the winner and being the successful person on top, right? You have to out-compete the competition. What if we just stepped out of that paradigm and thought about education as a common good, a gift to the community? And again, thinking about people who inspire you, who are in fact better than you, but don't make you feel worthless because of it, don't make you feel unloved or unlovable because of it, but who actually use that superiority to inspire you, to encourage you, to build you up. So thinking about practices that build each other up in love, the way we experience the community of the, the communion of the saints as a counter-formational narrative. Here again, we just did some analysis um, on lust and gluttony. We journaled descriptions that we used for food in a given day. Um, and you'll notice from the descriptions up there, I'm starving, I'm craving, fuel up, caffeine fix, supersize it, grab and go. We notice that we are very deeply formed by an excessive desire for pleasure that involved instant access and serving my own pleasure in a snap, instantaneous way. So we thought, okay, now we need to sort of think about how to live against that paradigm. Again, some creative practices. You commit to eating only with other people without a phone and sitting down for a week. Let me tell you how countercultural that would be. <laughs> Um, and also, when we did uh, Lost, we looked at the sexual slang we're using, um, noting that the Sermon on the Mount links contempt and anger and lust. And Dallas Miller has some really, really good stuff on this. Um, thinking about the way that we speak the truth about another person's full humanity and love by the words that we use for the other sex. So that was just a, um, an exercise we did with lust and gluttony. And then greed, um, I typically show them, um, we use the example of the film Dunkirk, and we use the example of the Las Vegas shooting a couple years ago, 2017, I think. The ways in which, in a dire life and death emergency, people's default reaction was to take any resource available and use it to serve the common good. So all of a sudden, my boat became the thing that I used to serve this army that needs to escape from Dunkirk in the middle of World War II. At the Las Vegas shooting at, um, what concert was it? Jason Aldean, maybe? Anyway, all the fencing ends up getting used as stretchers, carrying away uh, wounded people. Everyone is sort of pitching in, carrying away, and so it's not like... The fencing is somebody else's fencing. It's a tool for serving the wounded. Every car there that was available and had a driver became an ambulance. What if we thought about the gifts we've been given as resources to serve the common good? So again, just another way to kind of retool cultural formation in a way that um, challenges us to engage in a more generous, gift-oriented way of thinking about our possessions. So spiritual formation, thinking about this as a way of life that pervades all of the ordinary rhythms of our day in the classroom and outside the classroom, and trying to, um, I just want to challenge you to think about all the creative ways that spiritual disciplines that have been used for Christian, by Christians for 2,000 years can be adapted and adapted for formation in virtue, in Christ-like character in your own classroom.
and I have a bunch of absolutely teeny um, we need text up there on all the different resources on spiritual formation. I'm not an expert on this stuff. I'm using what the tradition has offered to try to um, add things into my own classroom. And I'm happy if you contact me um, to send that list to you um, or to send you anything else, the blog or whatever. Um, and my email address is on the top of your handout. Thank you very much. questions, I'd love to hear from you. Challenges, ideas, objections, insights. Yes? What, one of the things I struggle with in class is explaining, like, I guess a lot of students come from an approach of, like, sin management or yeah. behavior modification. Mm -hmm. I grew up that way as well. Yes. I noticed myself slipping into that mm -hmm. as much as I want to get out of it before it this. Sure. I didn't know if you had suggestions on how to Yeah, I do think language matters. Um, I don't tend to use sin and vice language. I use old habits and old ruts, cultural formation language. I think what my students recognize very quickly is the way that formation names something bigger, broader, wider than sin. So, I, I mean, the way I grew up with sin was either this thing that you just did, like an individual action, or it was your sort of sinful nature overall. And we really want to go for the middle space here. What are the patterns of attitude, action, emotion, reaction that keep showing up and keep showing up in my life? And how does that shape the kind of person I'm becoming? Um, so using kind of role model language, formation language, um, cultural formation language, that, that at least has helped me navigate to a different middle space. I don't tend to use the term sin for that very reason. Self-destructive patterns is another way to kind of frame things. It's a, it's a good question, though, because honestly, half my work in spiritual formation, especially with Protestants, is trying to explain what I'm not doing. <laughs> this is not works righteousness. This is the third part of the catechism, really. It is. Yeah. Yes? Yeah, I think that's really important. Again, a language issue. So colloquially, we use the term pride in all kinds of ways that are completely benign. And I don't have any problem with that. Um, I'm proud of my kids, whatever. Um, that sense of pride usually means I'm recognizing the excellence of something that belongs to me. Um, so pride, the vice, if you want to sort of talk about a worrisome form of it, um, I would focus more on... Um, an excessive desire for superiority or status um, that involves independence. So I, I'm thinking of myself as an individual who got there on my own. Um, so again, if you want to pick a different phrase or a different label because it's less misleading for people, have at. Um, part, of, part of this is learning to navigate different concepts and different vocabulary for different times in history. Sloth means something very different to us than it did to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. And I have to navigate that with my students when I'm teaching about sloth. Well, it's not just laziness. It's actually the kind of sandbagging that um, drags down relationships of love. Um, so I have to, I mean, teasing out new vocabulary is part of the project, it seems to me. Do you have another suggestion? For pride? Um, excessive independence. I, I would actually start them brainstorming with exemplars. So, I mean, they all know Lord of the Rings and stuff like that, right? The Harry Potter books. I mean, just lay some, lay some fictional characters out there and ask them to describe what they see as problematic in that person's character. See what vocabulary they come up with and then shape from there. You might actually end up coming up with a new term based on your class's own feedback. Do you have a suggestion for a positive term or a term that doesn't have some of the baggage of the word pride that you can use possibly? Yeah, it doesn't have that kind of worry to it. Um, seeking exaltation 
my way or the highway is a phrase that my students immediately recognize as sort of a prideful. Oh, a positive word? Yeah. Well, there's this word from Thomas Aquinas called magnanimity, where we're celebrating goodness and glorious achievement, sort of like the Olympic athlete celebrating success. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of greatness, where it's not an exaltation of self or one's own independence. I often use that example um, in my own teaching. Like, I love the Olympics when they stick the microphone in some, you know, kid from no-name town in Utah and said, how do you feel about your gold medal performance today? And they're like, I'm just so overwhelmed and everybody from town back home, hi, thanks for sending me here and paying for my plane ticket and supporting me all these, I mean, there's your exemplar of beautiful achievement that everyone gets to enjoy um, because it's a shared endeavor and everyone's sort of poured into it. So, I mean, maybe even something like celebration of excellence would be a way to, to put that or a celebration of the goodness of something. I actually find that I have students who struggle more with insecurity than what they think of as prideful superiority. Um, and there's more to be discussed there, too, with respect to how fear can mask pride. I'm only relying on myself to make it, and I'm not relying, willing to trust God to give me whatever gifts and resources I need. That, that's actually, ironically enough, a kind of form of pride itself. Another question or comment? According to my watch, we have five minutes. So. Yes? Um, honestly, I think scripture might be your best guide there. I name those passages, Colossians 3, mm-hmm. Ephesians 4, uh, Galatians 5, for, for um, the gifts of the Spirit, now. and and then uh, Romans 12 doesn't name the, the virtue terms themselves. Uh, but those, I think, would be really helpful starting points. I mean, one of the things that we have to disentangle is, you know, how would... Um, Christ-like endurance of suffering, the kind that you see in Hebrews 11, for example, and all the heroes of faith, and the way that they gave their lives to a kind of faithful endurance um, for the sake of the city with foundations um, that they were holding on to by faith. How is that different from resilience, which is our positive psychology word from a secular profession? How are the, I mean, how are those two things different? And I'm working with a college crowd, okay, so I can just ask the question and let them go. Um, but that might be something that we're, we're doing as teaching teams so that we're all using consistent language in our curriculum. Um, I mean, just a kind of soapbox moment, how is contemplation different from mindfulness? I want Christian school teachers to be asking that question. How is taking delight in the presence of God and the beauty he provides different than the kind of self-calming stuff. And I'm not knocking self-calming, okay? That's a good thing, too. But it's not the same thing, and that's my point. There's something richer, more relational, more gift-savoring going on in contemplation than there is in mindfulness. Other thoughts or comments? No objections? Come on. I'm a philosopher. I can take it. Right. What are your thoughts on that being pushed as a framework? Um, obviously, the general like that, I would say, in my what, what do you think about those kinds of systems that districts take on using vocabulary like that? They're using really good research from psychology called virtue labeling. Um, and it works, and which is why they're using it. So I'm not going to knock it in the sense that it's completely worthless or it's misleading or it's not worth doing. What I would say is they're doing kind of a humanistic, impoverished version of what we can do with a much wider lens. We have 10 times the resources 
historically and community-wise and in terms of the depth of our um, tradition and our view of the world. So I don't want to give my students bread and water when I can give them a feast. So if in certain contexts, that is awesome common ground, right? I can start speaking the language of positive psychology and try to say, and, 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 there's more. But that's a point of connection. And I don't ever want to say, oh, the secular world, completely, you know, throw it away kind of stuff. Um, that's a conversation starter um, and a welcome one. So I would say good as far as it goes. But in the end, right, isn't it a humanistic project? Um, it's a practice your way into virtue program. I don't know how well that program works for you, but <laughs> I'm just going to report from the front. That is not a thing for me. Um, interestingly, I, and I often find stories are helpful here. You know, New Year's resolutions, okay, how well do those work? Um, enough said there. But also, in my own practice, for example, of fasting, and I've tried it a bunch of different ways or whatever, you can fast during, for example, the season of Lent or the season of Advent for 10 years in a row. Same practice, same effort on my part, completely different results. Different things get revealed, different things get uncovered. Um, I'm changed and transformed in different ways. I'm prepared for things down the road that I wouldn't have been I mean, that's not a, I'm scaffolding my way up to virtue on my own power program. That's opening your life to something transformative beyond what I'm contributing. Process. So I often find a story like that is helpful, but that's why these immersive activities for students, even if you only spend a week, I can tell you it is kind of revolutionizing for people's way of seeing things. They're like, oh my, in only a week of trying to silence only part of my speaking, mind blown, right? So that is often kind of a tip-off for students. It's a way to kind of get a little bit of buy-in. Um, from the ground level. I often will not tell them what I'm up to until we've engaged in the exercise. And then it all starts to come together. Time for one more question? Now nah, let's go get some snacks. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. I appreciate you.